All right, so this is the second week of our uh, series, three-week series of Advent sermons. We've paused our move through Kings, and I've got already received complaints that I stopped right before the climactic moment uh, where Elijah, you know, confronts the prophets of Baal, and it's pretty epic. It's where the music in the movie crescendos, and I just paused the movie and got up to get popcorn, and you're like, what? What? I, I, I know, I'm sorry, okay? I'm a terrible sermon planner, okay? It's just how it came, how it happened, all right? We will be back to Elijah, but we just I wanted to pause for some Christmas stuff, right? Um, because there's a lot of other people preaching to us about Christmas during Christmas, and most of them are wrong, okay? Uh it's not, a, it's not about Santa, right? Though Santa was cool, he did punch a heretic in the face, right? So I'm really down, but it just let's talk about the real Santa. Maybe I should do that next year. We'll just do a sermon series on the real Santa. Epic, epic man. But all right, so there's that. We could even reenact it, you know, bring a guy in a claw suit and have him punch. You know, uh, I'm not going to name names who he would punch. But uh, it's not about stuff and adding more stuff to your storage units that you're paying $150 a month for to store your stuff that you can't fit in your house that is as big as it can to fit the rest of your stuff, right? It's not, Christmas not about that. Um, it's, it's not even a, a, about goodwill towards other people and everyone getting along. It's not even about giving gifts to other people. That's what the world says. It's about something far cooler than that. It's about Jesus coming, and that's why we're doing this. So this morning, last week I talked about joy. I'm talking about joy's like brother or sister, which is peace. Kind of alluded to that last week that people often confuse joy and peace when they talk about it. Like, like they're like this, like one, like peace is real joy, and they get it gets confusing. So, but they are related. And I'm going to get into that this morning. We're talking about peace. Um, so the title of this week is Peace on Earth. So I want to start with Isaiah 9. Heather stole my thunder and read it during worship, but you all won't mind doing it again or hearing it again. This is Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there's a lot of allusions there to stuff we've been reading in Kings, the throne of David. So I don't have to explain all of that, okay? But what I want to focus on is that his, one of his titles is the Prince of Peace. 
And one of the things he's bringing, Jesus, this is a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah that's coming. One of the things he brings with him is peace that will know no end. And, the, and it's not something we do. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the zeal of Yahweh, the, the, the God of the hosts of the angels that announced the birth of Jesus, that guy is going to do it, not, the, not us. There's a king coming from the family of David that will usher in a kind of peace where there is plenty of harvest. He mentions like, like in other words, enough, uh, an abundance of provision for everyone and no war. That sounds pretty good. I mean, that sounds like utopia, doesn't it? It sounds sort of like heaven. Where no one's worrying about money or bills or what they're going to eat tomorrow. There's just so much that there's just extra, no matter how many people have a need. There's just extra. And there's no conflict. There's no war. No one's trying to take over anybody else's country. Nobody's trying to steal anybody else's land. Nobody's trying to steal anybody else's wife. Right? There's no war and no conflict. And all of this is brought to us through a son named Prince of Peace. Peace is an interesting word. We all, we're all familiar. It's a popular word. Peace, right? Everybody puts out the peace sign or the sideways if you're cool like the pastor, right? Um, we throw that word around all the time. And we say things like Christians use it in a funny way. We say, I just don't have a peace about it. And what we're, I don't really know what we mean about that. Like, a, like uh, please don't make your decisions by looking inside of yourself and deciding how you feel about it, okay? It's not a great way, not a good compass heading, okay? Um, maybe it's a data point, but it's not a good way to live your life, looking inside yourself, all right? So that's a certain type of peace. People mean, in the world, when they talk about peace, they mean like a lack of war, like world peace. They're not talking about... A, vegetarian dish, world peas. They're talking about, you're welcome, there'll be more tonight at the party. Uh, they're talking about, right, no, no war, nuclear weapons are gone. That was the 80s. We all held hands during Coca-Cola commercials for some reason and swayed back and forth and just wished the world out of war and nuclear disaster, right? It did not work. So what do we mean? I think it's, it includes a lack, the biblical idea of peace includes the idea of a lack of war, a lack of conflict. It includes the idea of inner peace. It includes that, but it's way deeper than that. In the Bible, the word peace begins with the Old Testament word shalom. It's translated into English as peace, but is a much richer concept than what most English speakers mean when they say that word. It's one of those difficult concepts in the Bible to translate because we're using a word that we have simplified in a way that the Bible does not. What it means is, if I can give you some synonyms, perfect completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. Now, that sounds pretty great. Wholeness. That's probably the best, probably the word I would use the most. Wholeness or harmony. Like everything fitting together perfectly like a, a finished puzzle where there's not one piece missing. And everything's locked in together. 
and nothing's rubbing the wrong way, nothing's out of sync, everything's like click, perfect. That's shalom. It also can mean, interestingly enough, fully paid. It's a debt that has been fully settled, not underpaid or overpaid. Perfect. This exact amount was owed, and this exact amount was paid, and it is perfectly reconciled. All you accountants in the room, that moment when you feel, ah, satisfaction. This number equals this number, and everything's good. Copacetic. Even and fully paid. This is what we had before sin entered the world. This is the Garden of Eden. This is our original state. When God made man and woman, Adam and Eve in the garden, everything was working the way it was supposed to work. And they would walk with God in the cool of the day, and they would chit-chat about whatever. Totally open, and Adam and Eve were just totally in sync, and, and there were no arguments no, 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 no irritations. No, you drive me crazy when you don't put the cap on the toothpaste. It was none of that stuff. It was just harmony and shalom. And then we broke it. Sin comes in and it fractures all of us. Breaks everything. And now there's a debt of sin that has not been paid. The balance sheet is no longer equal. People don't fit together the way they're supposed to do. The world doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. Even the animal kingdom and nature itself doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. Everything, everybody's bumping into everybody else. Like a crowd of irritated people who just bump into each other constantly and say, get out of my way. It's traffic in Kernersville at 5 p.m. on a Wednesday. That's the world that we have now because of sin. So the Bible describes two types of peace. These are just my categories. Okay, it doesn't say these words, it's just my categories. One is objective peace and the other is subjective peace. Objective peace is the type of peace that exists between two parties. When two countries stop fighting, that's objective peace, a peace treaty. They may not like each other, they may actually despise each other, but they have come to some mutual agreement. They will not blow each other up because they both have gained some advantage from not blowing the other one up that they have agreed to to settle. But it's not any kind of relational um, reconciliation, right? That's objective peace. It's what pageant contests mean when they say they want world peace. Everybody just stop arguing and get along and stop pointing your guns and missiles at each other, right? That's objective peace. It is a kind of peace that exists outside of you, okay? And Jesus comes, we'll talk about this in a second, and he establishes an objective peace. He says, you will no longer fight. That's his deal. You will no longer be in conflict. That's what Jesus comes, one of the things he does. Subjective peace is a type of peace that's an internal feeling in the heart, a sense of calm. Subjective peace is what you have, have when you're rid of anxiety, worry, and double-mindedness. It's a deep, calm confidence. That's probably what a lot of us think of when we say the word peace. We just think that inner sense of everything's going to be okay. Right? So let's talk about objective peace for a minute. First, we have peace with God. This is the main basis for our objective peace. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 12 to 16. We could look at a lot of scriptures. I whittled them all down to this. All right? 
Verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, objectively not at peace, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was your state before Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Wow, what a statement. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So when mankind rebelled against God, shalom was lost, and Jesus comes and he restores shalom, the wholeness. And he does it on two kind of zones. The first zone is between us. He, takes, he just says there's basically two people, right? And they're fighting, and they're at war with each other. Jesus comes, and he conquers them. And he says, now you're one. You're not just, not just because you pretend like you're one, or you, it's not just a ceasefire, it is you become the same person. You are one in Christ. You are one new man. There's no, and he gives, Paul gives us a list. Later, he says, you know, there's no Jew, Gentile, man, woman, all these different categories that we have. They're all just obliterated, and you're one person. That's how we have unity. That's how we're one. And then he takes that one person, and he reconciles the us as one to God. So that's the vertical dimension. So there's no longer, we, are, we have shalom with God the Father. That's incredible. Not just shalom with each other but shalom with God the Father himself through Jesus Christ. And this is all based on the faithfulness of Jesus, not us. This is what verse 14 means when it says, he himself is our peace. Jesus is himself the point of reconciliation between us and God. He is the precise point between being reconciled with God, being having shalom with God, and not having it, being his enemy. It's a binary system. You're either his enemy or you have peace with him. You are unified with him and you are in him and he is in you and, and you're one with each other or you are his enemy and you are fighting with him and that is a fight everyone loses every time, all the time, forever. No one wins when you're fighting against God. Only God wins. This is the situation that Paul describes in Ephesians. So we have, also have peace with each other. Look at this, Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. Look at what, how he defines us as the one new man. He says, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The result of Christ reconciling us to God is that we're reconciled to, to each other, and he calls us a holy temple in the Lord. I think this is 
really important when we start talking about division in the church. As we all can, there is division between, you know, we have all these denominations and groups that don't like each other. And, but you don't start to become unified by trying to be unified. You start to become unified by realizing that you already are in Christ. It is what we are. We are one, there is one church. There is only one temple. And anything else that denies that reality is just a silly vapor that means nothing. It's, it's like you saying, no, we're not. To Jesus, who died and declared you to be one, you're like, well, I don't think we really are. We have these differences, and, and we, we, we can't worship together because we can't even do a baptism together because we can't agree on what that means, right? And those are real significant differences. But just because we're not worshiping in the same room doesn't change the fact that what Jesus says is absolutely, completely true, always. Like the church is actually the most, if you think about it this way, I know this is dangerous territory, but the church is actually the most diverse group of people that has ever existed and will ever exist. And I know, I look around the room and there's not a lot of different colors the way I'd like it to be. However, when God looks at the church, does he just see Living Hope Church? Does he just go, okay, come on, Living Hope Church, all my, all my hopes rest in you. You know, I died for this thing, and look at you, you're, you're just not doing it right. No, he looks at the church, the temple, the holy temple, and he goes, I have reconciled you together. I have done it. It is not a problem for me anymore that I'm trying to solve. I have solved it. And when we are in heaven, we will see it the way he sees it, because we will see the whole church, not just the people living right now, but every Christian that's come before and every Christian that will come after us will be gathered together in heaven, and we will see, oh, this is really one temple. And he's like, yeah, I told you in Ephesians chapter 2. You guys are really struggling to figure it out, but I already told you. I'd already done this a long time ago. This is just how I, you're just seeing what I've been seeing. This is shalom. This is, the, this is peace. It's much deeper than just good vibes. It's an objective reality that exists outside of you that has been decided and, it, and, and it's got nothing to do, you have no control over whether it's true or not. It just is because God said it is. It's an objective reality. So make no mistake, this is not a peace treaty or a ceasefire where both parties meet in the middle and throw up white flags and call a truce, this is something different. This is peace through conquest. There's two ways to get peace. One is, you know, a grassroots movement. Everybody says, you know, war is stupid. We should stop. We should all get along. That's one kind of peace. It's great. The other kind of peace, the kind of peace we see in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is a new, bigger, badder king rolls into town. And he puts his sword down and he says, anybody that fights, I will kill. That's that. If you fight, you're out. So stop it, right? It's the dad walking in the room to the kids who are arguing and grabs one by the ear, and the, we don't do that anymore, grabs one gently by the shoulder and the other gently by the shoulder and says, children, stop it. 
yeah, but I don't care. But he said something about me that I didn't like, and I'm really mad. I've been mad for 20 years. I'm just not going to get up. He must apologize. I don't care. Stop it. That's how Jesus brings peace. He conquered our enemies, Satan's sin and death, wiped them out, utterly decimated our enemies, and he will rule and reign in our hearts as well as on the earth. That is what Jesus did on the cross. This is great news because it means that the peace that Jesus brings cannot be broken, disturbed, or hindered in any way. He has done it in you, and he is doing it through you, and it, that is that. It's just done. So the only way to restore shalom in the world is the advance of the gospel. That's it. Because Jesus, the bigger king, has to walk in the room. He has to ride in on his horse and put his spear into the ground and say, stop fighting. And all the yeah buts and the blah, 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 and there's, you know, all the, all the history, all of it just stops because a bigger, badder king came in, rode into town. That has to happen in the world before real peace can come. If you want this kind of peace, it has to be through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Where the gospel goes, the kingdom goes, and where the kingdom goes, peace follows. So what about subjective peace? I know that all sounds great. You're like, yay, but I'm pretty angsty. What about my feelings, right? What about my life? All right, this sounds great, but I'm not experiencing this. I'm still living in a world where this, this sort of seems to be struggling to catch up with what Jesus has declared about it. So what do I do? Well, first of all, I would say that you're, that's subjective peace, right? Your subjective peace is grounded in the objective reality of the Prince of Peace. The first and most important thing you need to understand about inner peace is that your inner peace is a result of that objective peace that Jesus has brought. Without objective peace, there's no subjective peace. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. By the way, there's that connection to joy. Rejoicing is expressing joy. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The enemy of peace, subjective peace, is worry. Just worrying. What are you doing when you worry? You're, you're picking up some burden and you're throwing it on your back as your own personal and sole responsibility. And you're saying, I must, this is my problem to solve. And then you're worrying. You're looking at it. You're turning it and looking at it, inspecting it. And all. And there must be an answer. There must be a way. There must be a way for me to solve this and fix this and do something. I must do something about this. And you're looking at it and taking it on as your own responsibility thinking that the more you worry about it, somehow the, a, a resolution will come from your anxiety about that thing. But Philippians says you deal with your worry by bringing your request to God. And I love the answer he promises. It's not, and, and lo, God will then solve all your problems. Lo, if you pray, and you pray hard enough, the answer shall be, 
the problem you are worried about will disappear magically. It does not say that. What he says is, what he guarantees from you is that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. So you bring your request to God. You say, I have this thing I'm worrying about, this serious, real problem, this problem that's weighing on me, this thing that, that, that I just can't seem to get rid of, I can't seem to shake, I can't seem to fix or solve, and you bring it to God, and he may solve it for you, he may not, but what you are guaranteed every time you do that is the peace of God to reign in your heart. That's subjective inner peace right there. This shows that inner subjective peace is not accidental. It's not just something that happens or doesn't happen. It's a direct result of what we choose to think about, whether we take our worries to God in prayer or instead choose to hold our worries in our own hands. If you keep reading Philippians 4, she just, you know, this, he gives you these very clear instructions. Think on these things, things that are holy, things that are right, things that are godly, things that are pure, things that are, like, think on. Like, he talks what you use your brain energy for, what you allow to run through your mind is no longer the stuff you're worrying about. That's what worry is, just obsessing over something. And it says, instead, bring your request to God and then think about him and his stuff, and the stuff he does, and the things about him, the good things, the holy things, the righteous things. So whether we take our worries to God in prayer or instead choose to hold our worries in our hands is the determining factor between peace and not peace. So what about when you don't have it? Much like joy, peace is the default mode for the life of a Christian. I read that quote last week that if you're not happy, and talked about joy and happiness are essentially the same word, and the default mode for a Christian is to be happy. That's what we, sh- doesn't mean you can't ever be sad, it just means when you're sad, that's a weird anomaly, we should be like, that's weird, I'm sad, this shouldn't be, and you take it seriously as a problem, as a, a, a bug in the code, get it out of here, fix it, this is weird, Right? The same thing is true for a lack of peace. Peace is the default mode. Why? Because Christ has come. The Lord is at hand, he says in Philippians. Christ has come. He has declared peace. The king with the bigger, badder sword has shown up, and everyone has stopped fighting either because they want to or because they have to, but they have stopped. This is what he has declared in that peace. So why would I feel anxiety or worry about tomorrow? If he settled it, it should be weird. The world is not at peace. Often our immediate circumstances are broken and fractured, let's be honest. And sometimes we ourselves feel broken and fractured, double-minded, split in a million different directions. Wholeness can at times seem like a distant dream. This is another place where it requires some faith to believe what God says over your experience. And that is the beginning of the way out. It's not drumming up something within yourself. It's making a decision that, God, my reality looks like this. You say this. That's a discrepancy. And I'm not okay with the discrepancy. Can you help me figure it out? We remind ourselves in the Word that He Himself is our peace. Our peace is not just a state of mind, 
It's an objective reality that is rooted in Christ himself. So this means just like a lack of joy, that strife, conflict, worry, fear, etc. are trespassers. They do not belong here. So when your marriage is broken, that brokenness is a trespasser. It is not the normal default state. And it is not okay. It should not be okay with you. When your family relationships are broken and fractured, it should not be okay with you. You shouldn't go 10, 15 years just settling for a broken relationship in your family. It's a trespasser that you're allowing to take up residence in your household. So get it out. It doesn't belong. Don't accept what's normal from your family traditions. Don't do it. Accept what's normal from what God says. From that position of faith and the prince of peace in prayer, as well as setting your mind on the things of God instead of the problems that plague you, begin to get your peace back. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast your, that word anxiety is worry. It's not what a lot of times psychologists will say. It's like anxiety. you have a clinical anxiety. It's not the same thing. It's, this is worry. This is an obsessive kind of worry over carrying your own problems. So I have two parallel statements. Peace comes from a change in perspective. That change in perspective, when all you can see is, one, the enormity of your problems, or two, the intensity of your negative emotions, or three, the certainty of a bad future, when that's all you can see, those three things, then your subjective experience of peace disappears, right? So when you look at your problems, as all you can see, they seem enormous because you're so close to it, whether it's your own weakness or the problems in your life around you circumstantially, and all you can see is that your peace is gone. When all you can look at is your negative emotions that plague you, and it's all you're focused on, it's just how bad you feel. Or when all you look, when you think about your future, all you can imagine is something terrible. My past has been difficult, therefore my future must be difficult, it's going to be hard. God is not there in my future. Your peace is gone. You've lost sight of the objective grounds of your peace. You've lost sight of Christ himself. And the only way to get the subjective experience of peace back is to have your perspective shifted. I think we've all experienced this. The problem is usually it's almost accidental. You're all angsty and worried. And then seven days goes by and you show up at church. And when you leave, for some reason you've got your peace back and you never connect it because you don't understand what happened as your perspective shifted. Because from the vantage point of Christ, your problems are not enormous. From a different vantage point, he's enormous. He's always the big one. <laughs> not, not your problems, not the bully around the corner, he is. Number two, your emotions do not determine who you are or what the truth is from the vantage point of Christ. He is your peace. He is the objective reality. He himself. He determines what the truth is. And number three, your future is bright because he's there waiting for you. 
He's already been there. He knows it. He's traveled the road in front of you, and he's there waiting for you. He's still, he's with you now. He can be in two places at once, right? It's a metaphor. Work with me, all right? When you get to your future, whatever that future is that you imagine is going to be so difficult and hard and dark, who will you find there who's already been there waiting and he's got a campfire going, he's got some fish or whatever you like to eat, some fried chicken or steak or, I don't know, vegan stuff. And it's there waiting for you. He's got it all ready to go. He's like, I've been waiting for you here in your future. And it's bright and it's good because I'm here. You can have peace, right? Whatever that future is, whether it's hardship or ease, or comfort, death, life, doesn't matter. He's there, so it's good, and you can have peace. This is what I mean when I say change in perspective. It's not just being convinced that your problems aren't as bad as they are. It's looking at all of it through from the vantage point of Christ. How does Jesus see me and my circumstances and my future? So if you've lost your peace... I can promise you it's because you've got the wrong vantage point. If you've lost that sense of like, sense of safety and rest inside, it's not because you don't have enough money. It's not because your spouse is, isn't as awesome as you are. Right? It's not because your car is ugly or doesn't drive well or both. Right? It's not because of your, it's not any of that stuff. It's because your vantage point, your perspective on those things is from you and not from Christ. It's not based on the objective reality of Jesus, your Prince of Peace. It's based on your own ability to overcome and persevere. So if you've lost your peace, change your vantage point. Let me tell you how to do that if it's not obvious. You have to say no to the self-pity that wants to keep your perspective narrow and closed. Self-pity is like the guard on your perspective. There's a part of us, it's weird, that enjoys misery. It's super weird. Uh, and it's, it's what self-pity is. It's this thing that says, I, you know, maybe if I just moan loud enough, someone will notice how miserable I am. Mm. Mm. Ever been in the emergency room and heard somebody doing that? Drives me nuts. Oh, there's a cell. It's something. It's a weird thing about it. It's part of us that just likes being a sad sack, right? And like that feels like this is all I got left is this sadness. Maybe one day someone will notice and just stroke me right here behind the ear and just tell me how sorry they are for me and how they just wish, right? So you have to say no to that in order to change your perspective. That's the first thing. And then you just do the basic stuff, guys. It's just worship. It's prayer. It's reading the Word. It's fellowshipping with other Christians, asking for encouragement. It's just doing the stuff, the normal everyday stuff, what we're doing right here this morning, what you can do anytime, is you just start talking to God. God, I'm discouraged. God, this is hard. And you won't want to do it. You ever had this? My wife does this to me all the time because I, I lose my peace quite easily. Just a stiff breeze, and it's just gone. I mean, it's just like, like, like fairy dust in the palm of my hand, and if I just sneeze the wrong way, whew, 
into the wind goes my peace. And what she always says to me is, why don't we pray about it? And it makes me furious. God, you've given me this woman who always wants me to talk to you when I don't have any peace. I don't want to talk to God. Why? Because I know what's going to happen. My peace is, peace is going to come knocking on the door of my heart again. Hey, Cotton, I'm here. I didn't go very far. Just like yesterday, right? All right. I mean, make, you should make her pray first. And she puts her hand on me and prays some convicting, unmerciful prayer. <laughs> and I'll pray some mealy mouth, whiny prayer like, God, okay, sure. Let's do this. Right? Maybe I'm not the only. Uh, you're laughing, either you're laughing at me or with me, I can't tell. But this is what we do. It's just the basic stuff, but it starts with being willing just to say, you know what, I'm not going to live here in this, in this trough of misery anymore. I'm going to let, regardless of what's happening around me, while, my, while the reality of my life is catching up to what Christ has declared, while the gospel is doing its work in the world, in my family, in my life, objectively speaking, I am going to connect with Christ because he himself is my peace. You've got to be willing to do that. And once you do it, it's amazing how fast it comes back, isn't it? So that's what I would like to do right now. If you're not already there, I feel like worship did it for me, but um, maybe you're still struggling there. So why don't we stand up? And then we're going to sing again together. I want to encourage you, though, don't leave here um, full of worry, angst. Like, if you get through this prayer, if you've made it thus far, right, with no peace, then don't leave and get somebody to pray for you and say the words, I need encouragement. I just need, my peace is gone. And don't make a laundry list of all the reasons why, all the things that need to be solved before you can have peace. Just, just say, I'm coming to the source of peace, Jesus Christ, will you pray for me? Like, don't leave here with all of that still inside, all right? So let's pray. God, thank you for declaring peace over us. You yourself are our peace, and any kind of subjective inner peace that we long to have is rooted in you and not anything else. So God, we stand in awe here in the Advent season, sitting, standing right here at the, at the manger with the baby in it. All that's rich and fresh in our imagination. The incarnate Word of God Himself. And we ask, would you Restore the peace in our hearts. That no matter what's swirling and broken and fractured around us, no matter how close that brokenness comes to our life, maybe it's inside our homes, inside our bedrooms, in those secret places that nobody sees, that however close that brokenness comes, Lord, I pray that you would restore our peace in the midst of it. Because our peace is not hinged to any of that. It's hinged to you. 
God, and I pray as we do that, if you'll, if you reveal sin in us that has been a result of us clamoring to solve our own problems, to create peace for ourselves apart from you, God, we repent. Holy Spirit, we ask you to restore our souls. God, I pray that for everyone here that is weary of life, weary of the trials, weary of the tests and the difficulties, and is being tempted just to stop trying, to stop fighting for peace, to stop fighting for joy, to stop clinging to Christ. God, I pray right now you would encourage them. The Prince of Peace showed up for them. And he has declared that the war is over. And he has ushered in restoration and shalom. So God, I pray that you would encourage those who are discouraged right now. In the name of Jesus. Amen.